You've probably heard of heat waves over land before. Maybe you've even experienced the effects of one firsthand. But did you know that heat waves also occur in the ocean? Marine heat waves, a term first coined as recently as 2011, can have devastating impacts on marine ecosystems and societies, yet they remain a relatively new area of research. Join us as we delve into the world of marine heat waves in just a moment. Welcome back to Boiling Point, the weekly science show on Eastside 89.7 FM. On the show today, it's your hosts, Hannah and Griff. Hello. Today we are chatting with Charuni Pathmezwaran, also known as Chai. Chai is a recently finished PhD candidate at the Climate Change Research Centre here at UNSW in Sydney and studies a fascinating new world of marine heatwaves. Welcome to the show, Chai. Thanks for having me. To start with, could you tell us a little bit about what exactly a marine heatwave is? Is there a universal definition? Yes, so marine heatwaves are periods when there are very high temperatures in the ocean. And a commonly used definition to define these events is where the sea surface temperature exceeds a certain threshold for at least five consecutive days. So the threshold can depend on the region and um, the time of the year. So the way we define the threshold is um, we calculate the 90th percent of observed sea surface temperatures um, in that particular time of the year for a period of 30 years. Mm -hmm. And then we compare the current temperature against that threshold. And so if the current sea surface temperature exceeds that 90th percentile for five consecutive days, that's termed as a marine heat wave. Okay, so if you had really high temperatures but only for four days, it still wouldn't be a marine heat wave? It won't be called a marine heat wave. Okay. Right. It has to, um, go to go over that threshold of five consecutive days. And is that five days everywhere around the world? Like, um, No, it, it depends on where where you're looking at. So yeah. like I said, so it's region dependent, um, time dependent. So if, if you're looking at a coast of Southeast Australia, then it's in that region mm. if, if it exceeds um, the five-day mark. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So are there a lot of marine heat waves that are four days that everyone's like, no, nah, you don't it's, qualify it's just, as one. It's just kind of like miss the point. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That could be. Yes. Right. And so what actually causes these marine heat waves most of the time? Yeah. So there are two main ways in which a marine heat wave can occur. Uh, one way is through air-sea heat fluxes or just heat coming through the atmosphere and warming up the surface of the ocean. Uh, so imagine a sunny day, um, the sun rays come through the atmosphere, um, heat the surface um, of the ocean. And if there are no winds on that day, then there is not much mixing between that um, hot surface layer and the um, cooler layers below right. that. Mm -hmm. And so the heat continues to build up in this region, giving rise to a marine heat wave. The other way that a marine heat wave can occur is through ocean currents. So this is when water moves from one region to another, usually from warmer regions to cooler regions. And th these currents can then replace the cooler waters with the warm waters. So those are the two main ways in which a marine heat right. wave. Right. And if those warm waters were sort of staying in that area and not um, being mixed away or something, that would be like what's causing that marine heat wave. That's right. So that, that'll cause a buildup of heat. Right. And then there you have the marine heat wave. And okay. when you were saying how it's the top layer of water, so how deep does can a marine heat wave usually go? So um, most of the research that has been done so far has been looking at just the surface level, right. um, so just the sea surface temperatures. But 
More recently, researchers have started looking at what we call subsurface marine heat waves. That's where we look at a depth of about 50 to 300 meters. The only problem is that we don't have a lot of data, mm. uh, you know, uh, long-term and continuous data in, in those levels. So that's why there's not a lot of research in that, but it is an upcoming field. Right. Yeah, so does that mean it's kind of hard to define if there is a marine heat wave because you don't really know what the long-term temperatures were exactly. like? Exactly, right. yes. So there are lots of missing data in the data sets that we use. So that's why we've been looking at um, heat waves in the surface. Right, right. so... Now that we know a bit more about them, so how common are these occurring? Like with the data that we have, are we still are they still a very common thing that happen quite so a lot? A marine heat wave by definition is a rare extreme event. Because um, uh, it has to be over the 90th, 90th percentile right. for five consecutive days. Right. So you wouldn't expect it to happen too often. But that being said, because of global warming yeah. uh, with all the temperatures rising, we are seeing more marine heat waves now and you know these marine heat waves can last days weeks sometimes even months Um, so it is becoming a more common phenomenon than Mm. many decades ago and so would um i know you said that they're not common but would would we in australia maybe get like one a year kind of thing around the coast or is it not even that frequent so again it depends on how long each event lasts um and we're talking about different regions so it, it could be that in one small area, there's a marine heat wave that happens and then there's a bit of a break and then it happens again, mm-hmm. flares up again. So um, it's it's a bit difficult to pinpoint a number, Yeah. Um, but especially during the summer when mm. temperatures are much higher, you could see um, more heat waves forming um, along the coastal belt and mm. so on. Yeah. Okay. And um, just for reference, like how big of an area can marine heat waves cover in the ocean? Um, Again, so that's event dependent. Mm -hmm. Uh, One example I can share with you is, um, so there was an event in 2015-16 summer um, in the Tasman Sea. Mm -hmm. um, And during that event, the the area of the heat wave covered seven times the area of Tasmania. Okay. To give you context. Huge, yeah. That's a vast area. (laughs) Yeah. So that's just one one example I can mm-hmm. give you. But is that a particularly big one? It or? was an unprecedented event. So um, that particular event lasted for 251 days in a row. Oh so that's eight months. Eight months? More than eight months, a really long time. And, you know, it, it caused um, the death of mollusks. Uh, there was disease outbreak in farmed shellfish. And uh, temperatures were almost about three degrees warmer than their normal summertime temperatures. So it was a very big event. And I think it's still by far the the most intense marine heat wave we've had off Tasmania. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, wow. I think we might have some more questions for you about that later on. But um, could you tell us a little bit about what some of the impacts of marine heat waves are? I mean, you mentioned there the death of mollusks and stuff. But yeah, what are some of the other impacts? Yeah, so I think uh, the thing about marine heat waves is, so if if you think about heat waves on land... You know, there's a lot of heat, there's a bit of discomfort, but in addition to that, uh, it can cause death and illness among more vulnerable communities, right? So similarly, when there's a marine heat wave, it puts a lot of marine life at risk. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, uh, some of the examples are like it can slow the growth of salmon. Then if you think think of things like seaweed and kelp, it can affect their growth. So mm-hmm. that in turn affects the habitat of certain animals. Mm. And also it can cause migration of species from one area to, to another. To try and sort of escape that heat. Escape the heat, right. exactly. And so that's what happens in 
at, at a marine ecosystem level. But then you need to know that that can have knock-on effects on us human beings because we rely on fisheries and aqu- aquaculture as sometimes as a form of livelihood or mm-hmm. just a source of um, nutrients for us. So whatever happens in the ocean, even though we don't live in the ocean, mm-hmm. it can have direct consequences in terms of food pricing and yeah. availability. Yeah. It's just that like domino effect that like even if it is affecting like flora under the sea, it still has the profound like ripple effect, which can lead all the way to us. Definitely. Wow. And are there any particular species or marine um, groups that are particularly vulnerable? Like are, co- are coral reefs really vulnerable? Yes, coral reefs, coral reefs are very vulnerable, as you know, you would see the media portraying it. But like I mentioned before, Atlantic salmon, so their, their growth is hindered uh, during a marine heat wave. Um, also, if you take sessile organisms like oysters. Uh, and sorry, what, what's a sessile organism? <laughs> oh, uh, an organism that doesn't move. Okay, right. Yes, yes. So, you know, they're, they're stuck in one place yeah. and they're unable to get away from this okay. big yeah, heat source. They can't source. swim or... Yeah, no. exactly. So they, then they have all this heat stress that they need to um, bear. So, right. Yeah. This might be a bit of a specific question, but are the, like, do you know, could you explain a bit of the particular mechanisms of how this the higher temperature affects their growth or causes the dysregulation? Yeah, so I think it's to do with, so any organism will have an optimal um, body temperature. So like humans, we, right. we function at a particular mm-hmm. um, temperature. I like to say it's 37.5. Yep. Something um, like that. Something like that, <laughs> yes. Um, so similarly, every organism uh, on Earth, on land or in, in the ocean will have an optimal level at which they function optimally. And so if they go beyond that temperature, uh, then their d- different systems can start shutting down. Um, it could affect their reproductive system, so they can't have... They can't reproduce as much as they normally would, and that then affects the subsequent um, generations. Um, And then uh, there could be uh, viruses that may thrive in a hotter Mm -hmm. environment, Mm. and so more disease outbreaks. So, yeah. yeah. And I guess if organisms are also a bit more, like if they're in a more vulnerable state because they're stressed Mm. from the temperatures, maybe they're more susceptible to exactly Mm. more susceptible to those diseases. Yes. Yeah. And also, like, if you think about with humans, like, if it was a normal heat wave and if you're, like, spending – your body's spending all this energy trying to cool down, you're losing all that energy and you can't use it to grow or use it to reproduce or anything like that. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so, aside from Australia, um, are there any regions around the world that are particularly vulnerable to marine heat waves? Um, Yes. So, there are certain regions. So, one example is the North Pacific basin. Um, mm-hmm. So that has seen some of the most intense marine heat waves because it's this large, um, vast area. Um, mm-hmm. And so th- there's a lot of heat that gets built up in that region, um, uh, leading to more marine heat waves. Then in contrast, you also have regions like uh, the Mediterranean Sea and the Gulf of Mexico, uh, which have a shallow basin. So then there's again, that widespread um, heat in in those regions. So then they are, again, more susceptible right. um, to heat waves. So I think what really um, uh, determines if there's a marine heat wave or not really depends on um, the geographic location mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, just the nature of the ocean basin and how much they mix with other ocean yeah. basins. If there's limited mixing, then the heat can just keep building up and lead to more marine yeah. heat waves. Yeah, and so in the North Pacific, are these marine heat waves typically coastal or would, would they occur in the sort of middle of the ocean as well? Um, mm. I think 
A lot of them are core still, but mm-hmm. they also go um, offshore a little bit as well. So there was this okay. one famous event called, um, it was termed The Blob. Uh, this <laughs> happened in... But 2013, Good name. Yes. It sounds uh, like a horror film. And if, if you do look at the maps that show the sea surface temperatures, you'll see this big um, red blob. Right. Um, and so that, and you will see that it starts spreading um, near the coast, but then it also goes a little um, o- offshore as well. Right. So, yeah. Cool. So with the occurrence of marine heat waves around the globe, has that changed in recent years? Like how has this been changing in occurrence to global warming and climate change? Is the areas that these marine heatwaves are occurring moving? or um, So there are certain global hotspots, as mm-hmm. we call them, uh, where you find a lot of these marine heatwaves, like I mentioned mm-hmm. before. Um, so the Tasman Sea is one of those uh, um, hotspots. In terms of, um, you know, the nature of the marine heatwaves, what studies have shown is that with global warming, um, marine heat waves are lasting longer and they're more intense. And so it's, yeah, it's just getting worse. It's and not necessarily different spaces, but in the places that they are occurring, it's getting worse or it potentially growing. Yeah, potentially growing. I think right. um, there are regions that a lot of studies have been done uh, where you keep seeing these marine heat waves occurring, uh, you know, over the years. But I, I don't think it really rules out the possibility of... Mm-hmm us seeing marine heat waves in regions we haven't seen before. So, yeah. yeah. Mm. Okay, and so to move a little bit more towards what you specifically were looking at in your PhD, um, as I understand, one of your projects was looking at co-occurring marine heat waves around Australia. Could you tell us a little bit about what they are and what you found in that study? So what I defined as co-occurring heat waves was essentially when um, there was a terrestrial heat wave and a marine heat wave occurring at the same time. So a heat wave on land and a heat wave in the ocean um, around the same time. Next to each other? Next to, yes. So in my study, I specifically looked at the coastal belt around Australia. Mm -hmm. um, And I would, I would look at um, like the, the, the ocean so the coastal belt and then the, the ocean and the um, the adjacent land areas. Yeah. So it was just very um, like near, nearby yeah. to each other, right? So, um, and what I found in that study is that marine heat waves can increase the likelihood of a terrestrial heat wave. So this is what we right. call a co-occurring heat wave, right? Mm-hmm. So heat waves on land and the ocean at the same time. And what we found is that these events occur together more often than we would expect if they were to happen by chance. So there was something driving these events. Right. Yeah. So basically it would be more likely to get a terrestrial heat wave if there is a marine heat wave in the ocean off the coast. Yes. Right. And this was specifically looking around Australia. Okay. Right. Yeah. Would you maybe expect that same thing to be happening in other regions? So I know you didn't focus on other regions. Yeah. So my study didn't focus on other regions, but... Yeah, it's it's a little difficult to say, but I think it's um, it's probably likely that you know if if there aren't many differences between the regions, if if we were to compare Australia with maybe another island, um, yeah. and then we right. might see the same thing. But again, it depends on the ocean, the nature of the ocean basin, if it's yeah. deep and shallow, right. and yeah, so on. Sure. So, and so if you have a marine heat wave, but um, no terrestrial heat wave next to it. Can that marine heat wave still change the like weather or climate conditions we'd experience yes. on land? Yes, so it can. Um, so this is this is another project that I did as part of my PhD. Yeah. Um, 
where we focused on that unprecedented event that I mentioned before, the 2015-16 Tasman Sea Marine Heat Wave. And um, essentially what we wanted to find was, did that marine heat wave have any influence on the land temperatures? Yeah. And what we found is that, yes, it did. So there was no terrestrial heat wave, Mm -hmm. but um, the marine heat wave did significantly increase the temperature um, in the coastal regions of Southeast Australia, Tasmania, and the western coastal belt of New Zealand, um, up to about one degree um, Celsius. That's quite a. That seems to me like quite a wide reach of like influencing both Tasmania and the coastal belt of New Zealand. Yes, that's quite. because, like I said, so that event um, yes. was about seven times yeah. the size of Tasmania's, right? So a massive area, right? And so that's why it influenced um, yeah. both these land masses. And what we found um, to be causing this increase in temperature was essentially the winds. Mm-hmm. So the winds would blow from the marine heat wave region across the mainland Australia and New Zealand and that would carry this warmer air over the ocean um, onto the neighbouring land and that's what increased the um, temperature over land. Right, yeah. And can it change any other like variables? Like can it change, I don't know, the humidity or... I I think it very much can, especially so um, if... So that's not something I specifically looked at, um, something I, I... yeah, I've, I've started looking at uh, towards the end of the PhD, right. um, focusing on other regions. But the the expectation is that um, when you have a warm region, uh, that water can evaporate more with mm. all that heating. And mm-hmm. so the air above it can contain more of this moisture and the heat. Right. And so along with the heat, um, moisture can also be advected uh, onto these neighboring yeah. areas. Um, so, yeah. Wow, super fascinating. Just to go back a step with the co-occurring heat waves. So is there, like, what kind of factors? So surely there is something that's causing them both to occur at the same time. So what kind of, like, occurrences are happening that are causing both of them to happen? Yeah, that's a good question. So what we found, we, so after the initial statistical study we did around um, the whole Australian coastal belt, we focused on three different towns. So Townsville, Ningaloo and Hobart. And using them as case study events, we looked at what the weather systems look like uh, during a co-occurring heat wave and when there's no co-occurring heat, when it's just like one type of event. When it's one or the other. Yeah, one or right. the other. And we found that the... The weather systems, so the synoptic patterns, or you know, we, we call them like high pressure systems. Um, they tend to be similar when there is a co-occurring heat wave and when it's just one or the other. So it 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 seemed like there was something else that was kind of driving determining, it. driving it, right. if there should be a co-occurring event or not. And that was ocean preconditioning, or what we say, the the initial like the rest conditions of the ocean. So if the ocean is very cold to begin with, no matter what the weather systems are like, the the ocean can't warm up as much to drive a marine heat wave. Right. So what we found in these three places is that even though the weather systems that could drive both these events are present, what really determines it is where the ocean starts at. So, right. yeah, if, if it had enough um, ocean heat content um, or if it was quite shallow, then um, we would see a marine heat wave as well. But if not, then you'd only see a heat wave over land. So would that make 
terrestrial heat waves more common because it doesn't have this initial condition that's as, as resistant to change? Um, I'm not sure if it makes it more common, but uh, the thing with the heat waves on land is they are much more short-lived than the marine counterparts. So marine heat waves will last like weeks and months, like I said before, whereas um, a, a terrestrial heat wave will be over in a matter of days mm -hmm. because, yeah, they, they have like this minimum threshold of a three-day um, window. So For a, for a terrestrial for heat, a terrestrial wave. heat right. wave. And so even just the fact that it's short-lived could make it more common, but um, that's not something I'm... Right. Yeah, Is it, very are sure they of. more short-lived because... Um, you know, the weather patterns that we see move on quicker than sort of the ocean currents. That's right. Yes. Right. Because the ocean, I mean, sort you know, it's slower moving, slower and, moving. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you've got all that depth, that volume, uh, which you don't really have with the atmosphere. Yeah. So, yeah. Interesting. And so to go back to this um, Tasman Sea uh, marine heatwave that you mentioned um, and that you were looking at for one of your projects, could you tell us a bit about why that was sort of so severe or so long lasting? Do you know what was driving that particular Yeah, so anyway. the 2015-16 event was primarily driven by an ocean current, the the East Australian Current or the EAC. Yeah. And if you've seen Finding Nemo, then you might yes. be familiar with this current okay. because that's the same current that Marlin and Dory yes. um, travelled in. With the on, turtles? With the turtles with to <laughs> get from the Great Barrier Reef down to uh, Sydney Harbour. So just like, you know, what, what was shown in the movie, um, what happens in this current is that, um, you know, it, it brings warmer water from the tropical areas uh, to the southeastern coast of Australia. And so during this 2015-16 event, the EAC was intensified. And so we had lots more warm water coming then. Um, okay than and, the previous years. Right. So. And was that warm water going further south as well? Or it was, just... was. So it, it went um, all the way down to Tasmania. So the Tasman Sea yeah. uh, close off Tasmania. So yeah, it was a long way. So it was just primed for a marine heat wave to it occur. It was. And that's why we see this eight month long event. Wow. Yeah. So what kind of, I know you spoke about like the effects before, but like specific to that one case, like what repercussions were saw afterwards? Yeah. So one of, uh, the main things was to do with the fisheries, really. So it, it caused deaths in wild mollusks and also disease outbreak in um, farmed shellfish. So it was affecting the fisheries right. and the aquaculture industries. And, uh, you know, again, knock-on effects on pricing of various mm -hmm. fish. And, yeah. And I guess people's like, if that's your job and your exactly. mm. fisheries so, been sort of decimated. Or yes. Then and like a loss of biodiversity and everything like that. Yes. Mm. Yes. Do you know, I mean, this is probably outside your research area, but do you know if that particular marine heat wave had any impact on kelp and stuff growing off Tasmania? Or um, I w is that kind of too far outside? I'm <laughs> not sure specifically about kelp, but I would imagine it might have. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It might have killed off some of the kelp. But yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, that was a bit, <laughs> a bit of a far reach, <laughs> delving into the ecology. So as we now are looking forward, like in as how climate change is progressing, how do you expect marine wave, heat waves to continue into the future? Like, are we looking at that they'll become more common? Yeah. Yeah. So they will become more common. They like you know, marine heat waves themselves are considered to be like rare extreme events but they're not going to be as rare or mm. you know so we we will see them occurring more frequently 
Um, and pe- I think people will become way more familiar with this term because we're going yeah. to be hearing more of it. Um, in terms of like the future of this space, I think there's a lot of interest in um, marine heat wave predictability. So people are interested in knowing when a marine heat wave will occur right. so that they can better prepare, especially people who are like involved in these industries. And things yes. like that. Yeah. So they want to know when they'll have to face the next big disaster and how they can prepare for it. So I think there's a lot of interest in um, marine heat wave predictability. And for that, you know, we have to really develop our climate models mm. so that we are able to better forecast these events. Yeah. Um, and I think there's also a growing interest in compound events. So like the kind of work that I do, which is looking at more than one extreme event happening at the same time. And so is it comp- like are the co-occurring um, heat waves you mentioned, is that a compound event? Yes, it okay. is. Yes. So because we're talking about two different extreme events, yeah. so a terrestrial heat wave and a marine heat wave. Yeah. And similarly, there's research being done on how marine heat waves interact with cyclones. I was um, just about to ask if there was like some mega event where everything is going on at once. Yes. So back in 20... So there, there was a, a recent study which focused on the 2020 cyclone Amphan um, of South Asia. And they found that there was a marine heat wave in the Indian Ocean which intensified it because we're talking about right. a lot of hot water yeah. mm. and th- that's a lot of energy that the storm systems can feed on yeah. um, and that intensifies any cyclonic activity. So that that's um, proper research that's been done into it. And then yeah, wow. there's also um, you know groups that are looking into how um, marine heat waves feedback on extreme rainfall events and um, some of the work that I uh, did was looking at extreme heat stress events over land. Mm -hmm. That was like a different part. So yeah, I think there's growing interest in this sort of domain. Yeah, I feel like it's a term that is starting to pop up a lot more often. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, because we're getting more extremes now, aren't we? So now it's, it's... time to talk about them together yeah yeah it's a compound and so we've been hearing a lot in australia recently about you know el nino la nina years um do you know if there's any link between marine heat waves and those wet like those patterns so again um it really depends where you are so um during el nino years uh it's mostly the eastern coast of australia that gets affected so there's warm water in the eastern side and um that can then lead to more marine heat waves. And in contrast, if you think about the western coast, it's actually La Nina event, uh, mm. La Nina years. Right. Um, off the west coast, like off western the west, Australia? Exactly, western yeah. Australia, uh, where there's a buildup of heat. And then, so like the 2011 event after which the term marine heat wave was coined mm-hmm. um, was also called the Ningalo Nino, and that happened in a La Nina year. Okay. So, yeah. Right. And to go back to the research that's being done or that you think will be happening in the future, is there any aspects that you're looking to research moving forward now that you've finished your PhD? Um, so I'm really interested in compound events. So um, I think, yeah, if, if I do get an opportunity, I would like to research more into how marine heat waves interact with, specifically looking at um, heat stress over land. So this is where we talk about the combination of temperature and humidity. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yeah, that, that that's one particular area of interest to me personally. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. So, Chai, you've recently submitted your PhD. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, can you tell us a bit about like what you plan to do now? Would you like to stay in research? So, right now, I'm actually working on uh, some publications based on the work that I did for my PhD. Yeah. Um, and also looking for jobs. So, 
I'm on the job hunt okay. at the moment. <laughs> um, so what I'm interested in is really um, this space called knowledge brokering. So that's where you're a middleman between scientists and end users. Yeah. And so essentially translating science in a way that's accessible to people. Um, yeah. In like yeah, in in different realms. So. Because I'm interested in science communication, engagement, and also here we are, uh, here we are. <laughs> um, and also um, climate research. So, trying to find a role where I can apply all those, bring in all those interests together. Um, so that's what I'm interested in, and also yeah. spending time. Um, I think I'm, I am using this time post PhD to talk about my work, like yeah, yeah, what we're doing right now. And also, if I may plug in um, a pint of science talk Go that I'm it. giving next week. So if you're in Sydney on the 23rd, so that's next Tuesday, I'll be talking at the Governor Hotel in Macquarie Park about heat waves on land and in the ocean. So if you're around, come by. Yeah, you heard it here first. <laughs> Head yes. on down next Tuesday <laughs> to listen to more of Chai's amazing work. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much for being for coming on the show, Chai. Um, to end with, do you have any advice for aspiring um, or young uh, PhD uh, candidates or scientists in general? Um, yeah, so share? yeah, I, I would love to. Um, so I think I have like two main things that I'd like to say. One of them is I think something that's been probably mentioned um, in previous episodes and by most PhDs is, you know, finding something that you really love to do. So it's really important to find something that you're truly passionate about, very curious to answer, because this is a commitment of, of about three to four years. Mm-hmm. And you want to stay motivated even on like the hardest of days. Yeah. So I think it's really important to find a question um, that you genuinely want to answer and then you go for it. Um, secondly, and equally important, I think, is finding yourself a good support system. Um, so, you know, it could be family, friends, but just find your circle who will be there to not just celebrate your wins, but also pick you up on your bad days. Yeah. I'm lucky enough to have had such a circle um, from the Climate Change Research Center, including Hannah. So that really makes a difference in your PhD journey. So I think those are the two main things that I would like to say to aspiring yeah. PhDs. Very wise words. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks, Chai. Looking forward to hearing uh, more from you next Tuesday as well at the Pine of Science. Thank you. Thanks again for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for coming on. That was Boiling Point, the weekly science show on Eastside 89.7 FM. We'll be back with a new science story next week. Bye for now. Bye.